Good morning again. If you have a Bible, uh, I would like you to open it to Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1, the passage that Travis just read for us. This is a, an amazingly rich, deep passage that we could spend uh, all day on. Um, we're not going to do that right now. I hope that you'll spend more time than just this morning on it. Um, I think one of the most amazing parts of the passage is the p- part that, um, where it says that Jesus, uh, they were struck with fear. Jesus puts his hand on them to raise them up, tells them, do not be afraid. And it says they saw nothing but Jesus alone. And I hope that one of the things you hear today is that this is the goal of the life of a Christian. That you begin more and more to see nothing but Jesus alone. And yes, life is full of responsibilities, but it's also full of distractions. And the goal of all your responsibilities is that within them, you're looking to Jesus alone for how you carry them out. This is the goal of discipleship, of following Jesus, that you would see Jesus alone. Now, I'm going to walk through this entire passage and make some comments on it. And at the end, I'm going to apply it to us as a people. Um, We do need to make sense of how things arrive at this moment. We're told that this is six days later after something that's happened. What is it that's happened that leads the disciples to this moment of the transfiguration? Well, here's part of it. Almost the entire first half of Jesus's ministry, if you were to describe it in one way, I like to think of it as a party. The whole first half of Jesus's ministry is like a party. Think about it. He announces the arrival of the kingdom of God, and then he heals people as a proof that the kingdom has arrived. People are celebrating they're ecstatic with joy because for their whole, many people for their whole lives have lived with some kind of illness or disability and they are being healed. And so there's celebration going on everywhere Jesus goes. He is having meals with people that are, that are feasts. They go on for, uh, forever and there are people who never felt like they could access relationship with this God and all of a sudden he's there with them sharing a meal with them. There's even a moment where Jesus attends a wedding and he transforms water into wine. It's amazing. The the first half of his ministry is like a grand celebration. If you're a disciple during Jesus' first half of his ministry, it's a good place to be, right? But then, the second half of his ministry the mood starts to change. And that's what's happening right before the transfiguration. It doesn't feel so much like a party in the second half of his ministry. Jesus starts talking a lot about his coming death. He says he will rise from the dead, but the disciples don't have a clue what that means. All they understand is that he's saying he's going to die. How can these two things fit together? The first half of his ministry that was like a grand celebration and the second half where he's saying, I'm going to have to die. 
literally just before our passage today. Jesus talks about his coming death in detail. And Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. He tells him he will not let it happen. And Jesus rebukes Peter about as strongly as someone can be rebuked. And then he tells all all the disciples that he is not the only one who will have to die. They will all have to die in their own way if they're going to follow him. So here's what the disciples are struggling with in this moment. They cannot make sense of how the first part of Jesus' ministry, the arrival of the kingdom of God, the celebration and the feasting, fits with the second part, his death, and the strange part about a resurrection. And now Jesus is telling them that this has something to do with them as well. It's hard for them to fit all of it together. The glory of it all and now the suffering. But think about it. The same can be true for us. It is hard for all of us to fit together all the elements of our own lives. The beauty of our lives at moments. And also the pain of our lives at the same time. This is the moment when the transfiguration happens. A moment when the disciples cannot wrap their head around what's happening, around who Jesus is, how he can be Lord and also die. There's no human category for this. Now we're told in verse 1 of chapter 17 that six days later Jesus took three disciples up a high mountain and immediately it says in verse 2 he was transfigured before them. Now, I do want to make a comment about the historical reliability of all of this. So many people, especially as modern people, we read something like this and think, there's no way this is true. Somehow they made this up. This is some kind of myth. As unusual as this sounds, this story is as well confirmed as just about anything in Jesus' life. One, that he existed. Two, that he was killed. Three, that he rose from the dead. This belongs in a category with all of those. All the, the three of the main gospel writers, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this story. Also, Peter is still talking about this story 30 years later in 2 Peter. We were with him on the holy mountain. 1 John, 50 years later, is saying, we beheld his glory. This happened. This is not a myth. This happened. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, We did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. We were with him on the holy mountain. Matthew describes what this looked like in verse 2 of chapter 17. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. I want you to think about this. Light is not reflecting off of Jesus as if it hit, the sun hits him and then his face reflects it. See, that's what happened to Moses. Moses was in the light of God, and then his face took on the light, and it shone. That's not what's happening with Jesus. Light is coming directly from Jesus. 
It is shining from his face. When we read this, we should think of what we're told, that Jesus is the light of the world. This is not a metaphor. It's not figurative. It's literal. Jesus literally is the light of the world. You know, the sun, um, it is after Jesus. So it's not as if the sun has light and then Jesus has light. No, the sun comes after Jesus. It has light because Jesus is the light and he made it. Jesus is the light of the world. John the Apostle describes Jesus in this way too in a vision recorded in the book of Revelation. His face shone like the sun shining at full strength. That's Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. And the clothes take on the light of Jesus, the light that emanates from him. John the, um, oh, excuse me, Moses and Elijah then were told they appear with Jesus. Why would it be that Moses and Elijah would appear with him? Well, Moses and Elijah are the two greatest Old Testament figures. Moses represents an epic of God's law coming to Israel. And then Elijah represents all of the prophets who pass on God's message to his people, Israel, when they're in rebellion. And Jesus is fulfilling both of them. The ministry that Jesus is carrying out is a fulfillment of all the ministry of the Old Testament. But on top of that, Moses and Elijah both suffered deeply in their faithfulness to God. And so could it be that they are encouraging Jesus in what's to come in his own ministry and the faithfulness that will be a kind of deep suffering for him? Now Peter sees what's happening here and he offers to build tents for the three of them. I'm thankful that things like these are recorded in Scripture. I really am. God, Jesus doesn't take him up on the offer, but he also doesn't scold him for it. Peter is, in a way, innocently and lovingly saying, Jesus, I'm willing to do anything for you. And that fervency, that willingness to do anything, that means something to God. Even if it's misdirected at the time, it means something to God. Now, while Peter is talking, a cloud overshadows them. Clouds in the Bible represent the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. So the cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes. And this is verse 5 of chapter 17, and it says, This is my one dear son, my beloved one, in whom I take great delight. Listen to him. Now, it's important we realize that we only hear God the Father speak twice over Jesus. Twice. Once in his baptism, the other time is here. And both times, God the Father says the same thing about Jesus, about his son. This is my beloved one in whom I take great delight. I want you to think about that for a moment. What words come, if someone were to ask you, what words come to mind when you think about God? I wonder if one of the words is delight. 
He takes delight. Is that how you think about God? Because that's how his character is conveyed through his son Jesus. He takes delight. I wonder especially for the men in the room, how many of you take delight? Especially in children. Do you take delight? That's who God the Father is. He takes delight in his children. I wonder what it must be like to be God's child. Imagine, if this is how God thinks about you when he talks about you, he takes delight in you. Man, doesn't that make you want to be God's child? Well, God also tells them, there's good news coming, by the way. He he wants you to be his child. He wants you to know that he takes delight in you. Now, God tells them also, listen to him. And in this moment, the disciples are overwhelmed with fear. They throw themselves down with their faces to the ground. And then we're told, this is verse 7, Jesus comes, he touches them, he tells them to get up and do not be afraid. And then verse 8, as I said earlier, says, when they looked up, all they saw was Jesus alone. The one whose face was just shining like the sun a moment ago, he is now all that they see. And he's touching them. You know, humans, think about what humans do when we get power. When we get power, we use it, a lot of us, to distance ourselves from people. We buy large properties so that we don't have to have neighbors close by. Right? We get a a C-level office that's like at the top floor so that we can be away from people, right? That's not how Jesus uses his power. The one whose face was just shining like the sun comes up and touches them and says, don't be afraid. Jesus, the God-man, seeks to come close to us You know, we often, humans often react in fear to God's greatness, to the idea of holiness. We distance ourselves. Our sin makes us ashamed before God. And so we turn away from him and we run. But Jesus seeks to bridge the gulf between our sin and his holiness. So verse 9 tells us that they return to life down the mountain, And remember what's waiting for them down the mountain. Death. Death. Suffering are waiting for them. Jesus has already warned them, I'm going to have to die. So, no wonder Peter wants to build huts for them to stay on the mountain. Maybe they can avoid all of that. But instead, they have to go back down the mountain where suffering and death are waiting. The transfiguration, this entire moment, is revealing who Jesus is and who he will always be, even in his suffering and his death. It's a window into who Jesus is and who he will always be. The disciples are going to struggle when Jesus is pouring himself out unto death and allowing himself to be crucified. They're going to struggle to know who is he really? Is he really the Lord? And Jesus in this moment is saying, yes, I am. 
The suffering that he will endure will not diminish who he is. His divinity and his power and his glory have been joined to humanity and they exist together. And so through his death and resurrection, our frail humanity too, Jesus wants it to be joined to his power. And so this story, while it's a window into who Jesus is, it's also an invitation into who we are called to be as human beings, all of us. Peter, who witnessed the transfiguration, he later wrote this because he, he sees what happens to Jesus here and he believes it was a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to everyone who follows Jesus. He says that Christians are partakers of the divine nature. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And he says that we who share in the glory that will be revealed will be like him. Now, what do, we, what do we do with this story, with this window into who Jesus is? I, I want to mention three things that we're called to do out of this. One, you need to know who you are and who you are called to be. You need to know who you are and who you are called to be. So the Apostle Paul said in our passage from Philippians that he was striving toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has called you and me to be more than we currently are. More than we can be on our own. Wendell Berry has this great quote where he says, we cannot look inside ourselves to become better than we are. We cannot look inside ourselves to become better than we are. We have to look outside ourselves. God has called you in his son Jesus to become more than you currently are. So Jesus takes the disciples up a high mountain in order to show them his glory. And even in this journey of taking them up a high mountain, Jesus is conveying that the journey of faith is difficult, but it's always worth it. I went hiking this week, and it was this uh, hike that I had not been on before. You descend, 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 and then you have to turn around and go back up. And it's terrible. I thought I was in decent shape. I was, so, I was sore for several days. And it was funny because there were people who were a fair bit older than me who were doing it and didn't seem to be having trouble. And so that was discouraging. But that going up and up and up, there's a promise in that, isn't there? If I do that over and over and over again, that will change me. The journey of faith is like that. It takes hard work, but it's worth it, and it will change you. Don't settle in your life with God and in your life with others. Don't settle. You're called to be more than you currently are. Know who you are and who you're called to be. You're called to be a child of the Most High, a son or daughter in whom the Father delights. You are called to be a partaker of the divine nature and to share in the glory that is to be revealed. 
Jesus' face was shining like the sun and his clothes were shot through with light. And you, you're to take on that same light. Know who you are and who you're called to be. Two, you need to know how you become who you're made to be. You can't do it on your own. Remember what Barry says, don't look inside yourself to become better than you are. Remember the phrase from the story of the transfiguration. When they looked up, they all, all they saw was Jesus alone. And this is how you become who you're made to be. By growing in such a way that more and more you see Jesus alone. The goal of your life becomes to see Jesus. When we see him, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John writes, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And I know this is difficult for all of us because life is so full of responsibilities and pressures. But we don't always help ourselves either. Sometimes we take on responsibilities that are not ours to take on. Sometimes we go after the distractions that keep us from looking at Jesus alone. And we surrender to them. I wonder if you're saying no to those things that would distract you from seeing Jesus alone. I wonder if you're holding on to responsibilities that are not truly yours to hold. And then I wonder, in the responsibilities that are yours, are you seeking Jesus alone in those to serve him? Again, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, What I used to see as assets, I now see as liabilities because of Christ. I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. Are you letting go of all your liabilities? (laughs) And the things that keep you from seeing Jesus alone. Now Lent, I want to do a plug. I'm going to say this again later. We're starting Lent this week. It is a season in which you are called to reset your life and your focus on Jesus alone. It's an opportunity to refocus yourself. And so we encourage each other during this season to set aside the distractions. Enter into intense seasons of prayer and scripture, and fasting, and giving of yourself and your resources so that you begin more and more to see Jesus alone. I hope that you'll consider committing yourself to this season in significant ways, in a way that stretches you. Lastly, I want you to know, Jesus wants you to know, that suffering will never diminish you. Suffering will never diminish you. This is what Jesus was revealing to the disciples. He had told them, I'm going to have to die. And they could not wrap their minds around, how in the world could you still be Lord and lay your life down? And Jesus goes to the mountain, reveals to them who he is in the core of his being. 
And then he tells them, you're going to have to walk this way too. The disciples have to descend down the mountain, back into that valley of life. And Christ, they're having to learn that Christ's resurrection glory is not going to be obtained apart from suffering. His suffering does not deny or negate his glory. His suffering only proves his glory. And the same is true for you and for me. We have to suffer to receive final glory, but suffering does not deny the glory. It only proves and enhances it. If you're suffering, you're not alone. The Lord is with you, and not only is he with you, but he is preparing you for his glory. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I will do anything so that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And the way to do that, unfortunately, is through enduring the pains of life, the difficulties of life, and the challenges that go along with the call of Jesus to lay down our lives and to take up our cross and to follow him. So again, know who you are, know who you are called to be, know how you become who you are made to be through Jesus alone, and know that whatever sufferings you must endure, it will not diminish who God has made you as his child. Amen.